Well, it's that time of year. You're already seeing the decorations in lots of places, but certainly after this Thursday, Thanksgiving, you'll begin to see all the, the Christmas decorations begin to pop up. And of course, everyone begin to think, be thinking about the Christmas season, Christmas holidays. And, and of course, that should be directing our attention directly to the birth of Christ. But of course, kids especially can't help but think about gifts, right? So I'm just going to ask some children here, what is the absolute most amazing gift you have ever received for Christmas? I mean, it just stands out as the most amazing gift. Anybody? It's like my kids. You, you forget what you got just a couple of months later, right? Just goes to show how insignificant they are. Any, any, anything, though, that really stands out to you? What? Presence. See, I can always count on Rowan. Presence. Just presence. Just the fact that I'm getting presents is awesome. What else? Anything that just stands out? Okay, adults. Anything from your childhood that you just remember that just stands out as, I mean, I've got one. I, I remember receiving the adjustable height Nerf basketball goal that I had so badly wanted, and I got it. I remember that Christmas and walking in and seeing this Nerf basketball goal set up. It didn't propel me into the NBA, but it was a great gift anyway. Anything else, though, that just stands out to you as a great gift? A go-kart. All right. Right here. A Wii. Now, of course, we should know the greatest gift that God gave to his people. Well, it's mentioned in the verse we're going to look at today. Uh, what's the most famous verse in all the Bible, kids? Will you open the gift for me here and, and bring, it, bring out what's inside? And you will see what? John, John 3.16, right? So kids, it's the most well-known verse in the history of mankind. So let's see if we can say it together. Parents, they need your help too. So on the count of three, one, two, three, four. His only son. All right, here are the different versions. King James in there a little bit and NIV, just all kind of merging together. But, but right, yes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the most famous verse in the world. It's been called by, by one, Martin Luther called it the miniature gospel. Others have called it the golden text. One person colorfully put it this way, it's an ocean of thought and a drop of language. And so we've arrived in our Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series that is a chronological walk through the Gospels trying to savor who Christ is and see Him better and worship Him more fully. We've come to John three sixteen, And so that's where we're going to hang out today, simply on that verse. So let's read John three sixteen, and let's read the verses surrounding it so we have the context. So please stand if you would. I want you to turn to John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse um, 14. To bring us up to speed, we remember that Nicodemus is being talked to by Jesus here. Jesus is explaining what true faith is and that it comes as a result of, 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 a, of a Holy Spirit regeneration, the new birth. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it, so Jesus gives him the gospel. John 3 verse 14 says this, and this is the word of the Lord. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Y'all may be seated. Now you would think that the most famous verse in the history of mankind would be easy to preach on. And you would be wrong. (laughs) This is a heavy verse. And I have felt the weight of this verse all week and feel it even up to this very moment. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray now that you would have your way in this service, just as Nicodemus was learning from Jesus, that your spirit blows as it sovereignly and freely chooses to blow. And I pray that your spirit would blow in here, that we might worship you in spirit and truth now as we read the word and apply the word and and seek to gain the meaning of what it is that Jesus is saying here. Lord, I pray that you'd protect us from a superficial understanding of John 3.16 that just sort of easily fits into our world's fluffy understanding of God's love. But I also ask, Lord, that you keep us from any sort of error that might misinterpret God's love here and not see the, the breadth of it, the scope of it, the power of it, and the intensity of it. So I pray, Lord, now that you'd be with me as I speak and as I preach. And uh, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and we know that it will not return void. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, not many people that you run into in the world are going to have an issue with you saying that God loves. Okay? God loves you. That's a pretty easy thing for our culture to accept, a pretty sure thing. If you go up and ask people, what do you think about God? And no, no matter what their understanding of who God is or, or how many gods there are or anything else, they're more than likely going to come back with the, with the answer that, well, the God is love or God loves you. Or they might say love is God or who knows. But, but they, they attach the idea of God with love. It's very popular in our culture. But our culture's embrace of God's love is largely imba- based upon our definition of God's love as sinful fallen human beings instead of God's definition of his love. Many in our culture and many in our churches have promoted a view of God's love that actually weakens or even avoids other discussions of God's nature, God's character, such as God's justice and and God's righteousness, God's holiness, and the consequence of God's wrath upon a sinful people. And we avoid those discussions because there's this false idea that to, to discuss any of those things lessens God's love. It actually doesn't lessen God's love. Matter of fact, a proper understanding of those things actually heightens our understanding of God's love. D.A. Carson wrote this. He said, the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. And that's absolutely the truth. That's what has happened to people's view of God's love. So when we come to a verse like, God so loved the world, 
Of course it's a popular verse in our culture today. But we must seek to understand God's love on his terms and not ours. This verse seems plain and quite straightforward, yet if we really consider what is being said in this text, we'll find deep truth that's deeply glorious, and at the same time, it can be deeply challenging. Immediately, some questions surface when we read John 3.16. What type of love does God love the world with? Because actually, if we look at the Scriptures, we see that God's love is a, a multifaceted truth, a multifaceted reality. In a minute here, I'm going to address at least four different facets, expressions of God's love in Scripture. But after determining what type of love that is being demonstrated here in John 3.16, we need to ask, well, who is the world here? It seems simple enough, yet John's use of the word world in other places in his very epistles and in the, 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 the book of John, the, the gospel of John itself, leads us to be a little bit more careful about how we interpret the word world here. So today my, my plan is to hang out solely on John 3.16. That's where we're going to hang out today. And Lord willing, we'll hit the remainder of John 3 next week. I know I say that every week, and I apologize in advance that you'll probably hear that a lot from me. But it's, I guess to compare it to something, if you go to a, a fancy restaurant, and I don't go to fancy restaurants very much, but you go to a fancy restaurant and you get really good food. And you really want to enjoy the food. You don't want to rob yourself of the joy of that food by whipping it down so fast that, you know, it's gone in five minutes. You want to savor it. That's kind of the way God's Word is. So when you come across a great, meaty piece of Scripture like this, we're going to, we're going to have to sit there for a little bit. So we're going to hang out on John 3.16 today, and we'll, we'll continue with John, the rest of John chapter 3 next week. So let's talk a little bit about God's love, first of all. God's love. As I mentioned before, God's love is a multifaceted truth. D.A. Carson has been very helpful to me here. His book, extremely helpful to me as I read it this week, called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Has anybody in here read D.A. Carson's book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God? It's an easy read, about 90 pages. Um, and it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's written for, I believe, for laymen. You can, it's an easy read. But it's been extremely helpful to me. And Carson has done a lot of exegetical work on what, it, what the love of God means in Scripture. And he brings out in his book five basic types of the love of God that is mentioned in Scriptures. Now, I'm only going to, to mention four of them here. And, I, and, and also, Carson doesn't limit God's love to just simply those five. But I want to give us four of them this morning. And I've changed the wording a little bit from, from his book. But, but the meaning is the same. Number one, and it's in your notes here. It's in your notes here, so this first part here about God's love is in your notes. Number one, God has an intra-Trinitarian love. An intra-Trinitarian love. What I mean by that is the love within the Godhead. Between the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the Son loves the Father, the Father loves the Son, the, the Father loves the Spirit, and so on. John three thirty five. the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20 says something similar. And all throughout the New Testament, we read of this intra-Trinitarian love. And this is, a, this is a love, honestly, that none of us can fully fathom. Because it's a love being given by an infinitely holy God within the Godhead and being received by an infinitely holy God within the Godhead. And so it's a perfect love that we can't quite fully grasp. But it's, it's there. It's part of God's love. 
So it's in a category of its own. Now the rest, the other three I'm going to mention here, are God's love for his creatures, for mankind in particular. So the next thing I want us to see is there's a God's providential love. God's providential love. It's a, it's a love that he has over all things that he's made. Okay, we, we may also refer to it as God's common grace. God's common grace, his providential love. This is the love which leads God to make his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust, as we read in Matthew 5, verse 45. This is a general, gracious, merciful, common grace, common love poured out upon all of humanity. Because we all deserve, because of our sinful rebellion, we deserve to be immediately wiped off the face of the planet, immediately receive the full wrath of God, immediately to to be cast into an eternal hell. We deserve that in this world because... Because of our sin, it has fallen into decay and depravity. The whole world deserves us to be destroyed. But yet God providentially holds it all together and and exhibits a common grace and love on all mankind. The next type of love that we see mentioned in the scriptures is God's yearning love. And it's related to his providential love. And it's also related to the next type of love we're going to mention. But I would say this is God's inviting love. This is God's expressed love towards mankind in his desire for them to turn to him and be saved. This is the love of God that desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, according to 1 Timothy 2.4. This is God's love that although he hates evil and he can even hate evildoers, this is the type of love that, that where God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. 2 Peter 3.9 also expresses this yearning, inviting love of God. God invites men to come, to turn from their sin, to call on him, to put their faith in him and be saved. Yet, most don't. Why? Because they do not desire to. Their hearts are predisposed toward evil, toward rebellion. Because they do not desire to come to God. Fallen man is free to choose what he desires, but because his desires are only wicked, he will not come to God. He will never choose Christ, for he cannot choose what he does not desire. He won't do it. Therefore, there has to be a fourth type of love. And this is God's Choosing love. God's choosing love, or God's electing love, or God's salvific love. Well, we see it in the Old Testament when God sets his affections upon Israel simply because he wants to. It's not because they're stronger, according to Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 10. It's not because they're stronger, or they're better, or they're, they're a more wonderful people than anyone else on the earth. But simply because God wants to love them. It's his own Free love. And then we read in Exodus 33, 9, this God's self-proclamation of his name and of his character. He says what? I'm a God who has mercy on whom I have mercy and have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is God's free, sovereign love. And of course, this is the love spoken of in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. This is the love born solely out of his sovereign freedom 
and it is a love that leads to the rescue and salvation of sinners. Now, it's a mistake to merge all these loves into just one type of love. But it's also a mistake, I think, to unwittingly divide them up. What do I mean by that? I think we can have a muddled and errant theology if we, first of all, artificially compartmentalize God's love, okay, and fail to recognize that God's love, even different facets of his love, can be demonstrated to, his, to different people, even in the same text of Scripture. Therefore, we don't need to read these, five, these four categories here as distinctive loves of God, plural, like it's a toolbox. Well, I'm going to give this person this love and this person this love and this person this love. But this is different facets of the love singular of God. These are not loves of God, but the love of God expressed in different ways. And I think we can relate to this to a certain degree. We're sort of the same. If I stand up here and I say, I love soccer, and then I say, I love my wife, I surely hope that you understand there's two different expressions of love. If they're not, I'm in trouble. Another danger is that if we extrapolate any one of these loves and generalize it and make it normative for all the mentions of God's love in Scripture, we will most certainly fall into theological error and confusion. If we absolutize or generalize God's love and take one of these categories and apply it to every time it mentions God's love, we're going to be in trouble. For example, if we take God's choosing, God's sovereign choosing love, and we apply it to every mention of God's love in Scripture, we can fall into a type of fatalism, a view of God's love that makes it out to be disingenuous, mechanistic, fatalistic, and impersonal. And it would lead some to avoid telling others that God loves them because they would just say, well, you know what? Maybe God doesn't love them. So you take God's choosing love and apply it to all people and say, well, I'm not going to tell so-and-so that God loves them because I don't know if God does love them or not. Yes, you do. You do know that God loves them. He may not love them with this number four type of love, but we do know that God loves all men. Or God's yearning love. If we apply God's yearning love to all types of mentions of God's love, we fall into a type of theology that says, oh, well, God's done his best. Poor old God, he's up in heaven. He did his best for you. He called you now. It's up to you. Poor old God just needs you to do something to show that you love him. And we neuter God and make him into this being who just, well, I hope someone loves me. Or if we take God's providential love, this common grace, and we apply it to every mention of God's love in Scripture, we fall into a view of God where God's love is independent of anything we believe or do. And it's this sort of fuzzy idea that people have today about God's love. God just loves everybody. Just be who you are. We're all children of God. Have you heard people say we're all children of God? That comes out of applying this providential love view of God to all situations and all mentions of God's love in Scripture. And it leads to theological error. And this is the contemporary view. This is the the view that's so accepted in our world today. So I say all that to give us a little foundation here as we move forward and we think about John 3.16. So what, what, what are we seeing here in John 3.16? Well, first of all, let me say that I believe that this is one of those texts where there's a multifaceted nature of God's love on display. We are tempted to try to pin this text into a theological corner. 
Now, there are two camps within our circles regarding how people view the extent of God's love in John 3, 16. There are theological heavyweights like Turretin and Flavel, Knox, Luther, Edwards, Owen, Newton, and even up to today's R.C. Sproul, who say that God's love here that he demonstrates is only for the elect in John 3.16. There are others, other heavyweights like Calvin himself, Henry, Spurgeon, Fuller, Murray, Warfield, Kuiper, Carson, and even John Piper today that say, no, this mention of God's love in John 3.16 is a more general, of a more general nature in this text. And I tend to fall in line with what I read John MacArthur once said regarding this text, believing that there is a balance here of both God's yearning love, but also his choosing and electing love that is most fully demonstrated in this text. So first I want us to see that there is this general yearning love of God for all mankind in the sense that this verse here is a call. It is a summons for all to believe in the Son and be saved. I say this based upon the context. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a confused, lost Jew. He's confused about the nature of saving faith. He's confused about the nature of spiritual birth. He says, how can these things be? Jesus gives him Numbers 21, says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And flowing out of that thought that anyone, anyone who looks to the Son and believes will be saved, comes a question. Why is it open to anyone? It's open to anyone because or for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The son, the son has been given Nicodemus so that all who call, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Nicodemus would have been thinking that the kingdom of God was limited to Jews. But in this one sentence, Jesus blows open the gates of heaven and says that God's love is not limited to the Jews. But it's poured out upon all men in a general yearning sort of way. And it's poured out specifically on the whosoever of this passage. The whoever believes in him are the ones who experience the most emphatic and deep nature of God's love. And so let me clearly and emphatically also say that the deepest measure of God's love for humanity that's seen in this text is his choosing love poured out upon whoever believes. The context demands it. For Jesus, is, like I mentioned, has been talking to Nicodemus about what true belief is like. And if you'll remember that according to John 3, 8, that true belief only comes from the new birth, which is the free and sovereign work of God. So it is God's electing love that is most in view here. Does God love all the world? Yes, emphatically, yes. With a providential and yearning love, come and believe. But there is a deeper and more extravagant love poured out on those who believe. So with that said, let's take the rest of our time this morning to examine God's extravagant love for his children. As shown in the words of John 3, 16. So we're just going to walk through it word by word or phrase by phrase. The first thing I want us to see is that God's love for his children is an intense Love. For God so loved. God's love is infinitely greater and more intense than any love 
that you've ever had or that any other person has ever shown you. I don't care how much your grandma loves you or how much you love your grandma. It doesn't compare to the love of God for us in Christ. And if you've experienced the love of God in Christ, then you've experienced what we read earlier in Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. And who are those who fear him? Those are those who have put their faith in him, who believe in him. His high love, his extravagant love is reserved for those who believe. A higher and more intense love than we could ever experience elsewhere. Infinitely deep, infinitely intense. The word so here in the Greek is, is it demonstrates the intensity of God's love because it's in the emphatic position in the structure of the sentence here. And so it could actually read, for so did God love the world, or for in such a way did God love the world. This is to say that God has poured out his love with an intensity on those in this world who will believe in his son. And that intensity is most fully demonstrated in the cross. This is how he loved us. He gave his son as a demonstration of his intense love. In this way he loved us. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, that we might live through him. The promise of life eternal comes through this intense love of God for his children. It's the promise of life, therefore, implies that this love is an eternal love. That's her second point. God's love for his children is an eternal love. God so loved The verb tense for loved here is in the aorist, active, indicative tense, which gives us the idea that God's love is a constant action. A constant action of God on our behalf. It's been going on forever and it will keep going on forever. It's a constant action of God on our behalf that traces its way all the way back into eternity past, comes forward, finds its fruition in Calvary, moves to our present situation, and then continues on into eternity future. That's God's love for his children. It's a love from age to age. It's a vast love that existed for his children before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 clearly tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And let me draw our attention again to Psalm 103 that we read earlier. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear Him. For those who fear Him. Those who believe. The whosoever of John 3.16. There is a love that existed from before time began and that will continue to exist forever and ever. The gift of love that is given to those who believe in this text expresses itself in eternal life. It says that, that the gift of God in this text is eternal life. It's an unending love. John eleven twenty five says that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's how Jesus finishes that phrase, that verse, with a question. Do you believe Common grace, my friends, will come to an end. Unbelievers will perish and the common grace of God will fade off in the flames of hell. 
yearning love will cease. That yearning, calling love, it will cease. For there will come a time when the invitation is no longer open. Yes, every knee will bow, but some willingly, others will be forced to bow. And the yearning God, love of God will come to an end. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2. These other loves of God, these other two, at least how they relate to God's creatures, not the Trinitarian love, but these other two loves of God will Cease. But for those who believe, the whosoever, John 3, 16, those of us who are in Christ, we've been given eternal life. Scripture says you have eternal life. Have. It is a present reality. The divine life of God has been breathed into us. We are alive and we will continue to be alive for all eternity. It's an unending, inseparable love of God as we read in Romans 8. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see the immensity of God's love towards his children? It's an infinite love. God so loved. His love is so vast. His love is so deep. His love is so powerful, so amazing, so stunning, so unparalleled. Now we can only understand this love of God when we understand that we are all, we can only fully understand this love of God if we understand that we are all born rebels. We're all born as sinners, wicked and dead, yet he initiated love with us. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this leads me directly to our next point about God's love in this verse. Number three, God's love for his children is an undeserved love. For God so loved the world. Now we need to understand how John uses the word world. We certainly can see, and I believe so, that in this text God is using the word, Jesus is using the word world to expand Nicodemus's understanding of the breadth and the saving power of God's love. And I think that's right. But we also see that in almost every place in John's gospel, almost every place in John's gospel and in his epistles, when he uses the word world, the word um, cosmos, he's referring to fallen humanity. Fallen humanity in general who are in willful rebellion against God. Here's an example of it. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. World, in John's vocabulary, therefore, is this countless mass of perishing sinners of whom the whosoevers of John 3.16 are called out of. Both Jews and Gentiles alike were called out of this mass, this world of sinful rebels. Therefore, when we read that God so loved the world, John is not so much referring here to the, the bigness of the world, but to the badness of the world. What should amaze us about God's love is not just that it's so big, but that he loves us who are so bad. God so loved nasty, fallen, rebellious, wicked sinners. And not only that, nasty, fallen, rebellious, wicked sinners that also hate him. And he 
so loved us. God's love is not based on how lovely we are, how moral we are, how good we are, how much we can work to earn God's favor. God is not a debtor who gives love to those who earn it. He gives love indiscriminately, unconditionally to sinners who deserve hell. So when we read world, you need to read it in that sense in this text, that God loves sinners. And you need to understand that our sinful bunch of humanity, that out of the sinful bunch of humanity, God calls some who will believe. That's the whosoever, the whoever of John 3.16. He has chosen to pour out his extravagant, unconditional, electing love upon Wicked, wicked men. The saving love of God does not find its genesis in us, but in the sovereign and free will of God. God does not love us because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. Our problem with accepting this unconditional electing love of God is that we don't know who we are. If we're having a hard time accepting God's sovereign, free, unconditional electing love, it is more than likely because we don't understand who we are. If the gospel is presented to two people, let's say you and your sibling, and one receives the gospel and one doesn't, if it's not due to the sovereign free grace of God, who, as we read in John 3, 8, sends his Holy Spirit to blow upon whom he wills, if it's not due to God's sovereign work, let's take that off the table, who is it up to then? Why does one sibling believe and the other doesn't? Hmm. we're only left with one choice, that this sibling did something better than this sibling. Somehow this sibling was a little bit better. At least they had something that they did to accomplish salvation in themselves. But if we understand God's love is free, and I stand on that because I believe it is so clearly taught in Scripture— All boasting has been removed. Every bit of it. Even the tiniest thread of boasting has been moved to the side. All boasting has been removed. If we understand what the scripture says, that though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, because of him who calls, She, that's Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. When you begin to talk about God's love in that way, John 3.16 isn't such a fuzzy verse anymore. And it's hard for our culture to swallow it. But our role in that is to call on people to share with people that God has a yearning love that all who call upon him will be saved and let God be free to work however he sees fit. We share the gospel. We call on people to be saved. And we let the Holy Spirit work how he sees fit. The unconditional love of God led God to love the unlovable and therefore give the unthinkable. So the next thing I want us to see in this text is God's love for his children is a sacrificial love. God so loved the world that he gave. God's love is a sacrificial giving love. It's sort of the heartbeat of this text. It's this giving love of God. So that's why I had that 
that gift out here earlier today. It gives itself of the maximum to seek the highest good of the loved. But the level of the sacrifice is measured by the value of the gift. The measure of the sacrifice or the level of the sacrifice is measured by the worth or the value of the gift. And thus, the Greek text here puts the emphasis on the words that he gave his only son. God so loved the world that, this is how his love for that mass of fallen humanity is shown, that he gave his only son. He gave his son. His only son. Now, in the ESV it says only son. I heard when we all quoted John 3.16, we heard some begottens out there. The only begotten son is not wrong to say that because they certainly can translate it that way. But that word begotten has been wrongly interpreted in various different points of church history to, to say somehow that Jesus was created. But the word here, yes, it can refer to origins, but in the biblical sense, it always refers to the special status or uniqueness of the Son. And we know from other scriptures like the passage in Hebrews that refers to um, Isaac as Abraham's only begotten, that that's the way it's being used here. That Jesus is the unique, special, above all, one-of-a-kind Son of God. And this Son, the beloved Father, gave up for us. I'm afraid that because we don't more fully think about that very first type of love that I mentioned, that intra-Trinitarian love, and we don't think deeply about that, and we don't think deeply about the love within the Godhead, I think because of that, we sometimes can't fathom how costly it was for God to give us His Son. This giving of the Son to a bloody, gory, sacrificial death was the will of God. Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. And it was the will of God, and it was the mission of the Son. And it pleased the Father. And, and, and the Father loved the Son because the Son carried out the mission. John ten seventeen. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. How much does God love us? He loves us so much. He loves His children so much that He would not withhold His own Son from the cross from a gory, bloody torture so that rebels could be made clean and accepted in his sight. Again, we must see that we were indeed rebels for only then do we see and savor the truth of God's sacrificial love and then also that God's love for his children is number five, a rescuing love. It is a rescuing love. God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Should not perish Perish is the alternative to eternal life. It is the alternative that remains on all those who continue in their sin. To all who remain dead in their sins. And all those who remain dead in their sins freely choose this alternative. It's their desire. Perish means, according to John 3, 38, that the wrath of God remains on a person. Therefore, perish does not mean annihilation, but eternal damnation. This is God's final and eternal judgment. And verse 18 makes it very clear that perishing means being judged or condemned. And verse 18 also makes very clear that we are already condemned in our sin. And God's just condemnation remains upon rebels who are sinful to the core, and thus they are destined to suffer eternally, to always be dying and ever dying, yet never dying. 
It's the verdict we all deserve. Yet God, while we were still sinners in His great love, saved us. And that's His rescuing love. Finally, I want us to see that God's love for His children is a free love. And we've talked about this a little bit already. But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love was not free for God. It cost Him His Son. It was not free for Jesus. It cost Him His blood and His very life. But there's nothing we can do to pay for it, to earn it, to merit it. We can only receive it by faith. And whoever believes, whoever believes, receives this great love. The great love of God is received by this believing in Christ. The sinner can do nothing to earn or purchase such a great gift because we all fall short. But God gives us the free offer of the gospel. Good news. Good news that sinners, rebels, can have eternal life. If we'll simply put our faith in Christ, if you'll simply put your hope, all your faith, all your weight upon Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. You can turn away from the the self-efforts, from the self-righteousness, and turn to Christ alone and believe on Him, trust in Him. That in Him alone you can find forgiveness of your sins. For He went to the cross to absorb the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. In Him alone can you find the righteousness that God requires. For Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years. A perfect righteous life in God's eyes. Never sinning once on behalf of those who put their faith in Him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. You've been born again. There's this new life that's come into you. And you place your faith in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. And 2 Corinthians Corinthians goes on to tell us that all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. It cannot mean that he reconciled everybody to himself in that text or else we'd be universalist. It must mean that out of that mass of sinful humanity, God has chosen some. He has reconciled some. He has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal. There's that yearning love. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God. That's the yearning love of God screaming out to you this morning. Be reconciled to God. Oh friend, if you're not a believer in Christ, then you are living under the providential and common grace of God. And God loves you so much and yearns and invites you to himself. And you've heard that this morning. And so I can say with all confidence in God's word, come, believe, be reconciled to God. And if you believe, you will enter into a level of the love of God that's so extravagant that it'll blow your mind. You will already be found in the love of God that is so extravagant that it blows your mind. It's a love reserved for God's children. Receive Him today. You'll be a child of God, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become what? Children of God. And if you do receive him today, my friend, you must know it is because the Spirit of God, according to John 3, 8, freely blew and caused new birth in you. For the text goes on to say, as we've mentioned already over the past few weeks, verse 13, who were born, 
If you're a child of God, you were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So if you come, if you do come and truly cast all your hope and faith in Christ alone, you will know that you have been born from above. And you will have discovered a level of God's love that you never experienced before. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Come to Him. Trust Him. Love Him. And if you do find yourself loving this glorious Savior of ours, God gets all the credit. You can't take any of it. 1 John 4, 19, and we'll close with this. We love because He first loved us. What an extravagant gift God's love is. An extravagant and amazing gift that He has poured out upon His children. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, we we have to admit our limitations. We cannot fully grasp your love. Lord, it's very tempting and it's very easy to just fall into a fuzzy general view of God's love that we're all just children of God and we're all just somehow morally neutral and He he loves us and those who begin to tilt the boat towards badness and evil, God doesn't love as much. And then those who tilt the boat towards goodness and righteousness, God loves more. But that's not what your word says. It may come from the the seat cushions of Oprah's set. It may come from even the pulpits of some churches. But God, we want to worship you in truth. What does your word say about your love? And yes, you love all men with a yearning love. You don't desire to see any man perish. But God, in your providential wisdom and to display your glory, Father, you have poured out a sovereign choosing love upon some. And for that, we give you praise and glory and we thank you. And to try to explain it beyond what your word says, Lord, we just simply put our hand over our mouth. Because we are too sinful to grasp how you work. Because you have a love that's higher than the heavens. And our thoughts can't quite get up that high. So God, we pray now that you turn our hearts towards you. Let us see what we can see. We can see the love of God demonstrated on Calvary. We can see that Christ took nails on our behalf His skin was ripped from his body on our behalf. We can see that. We can see the extravagant love of God on full display at the cross. So now let us focus our minds there as we sing this closing song, Lord. And let us respond accordingly with our offerings, with our prayer requests. And Lord, if anybody needs to talk to me or about this message or about the gospel...
Lord, I believe there are some in here who've been living, <laughs> they've been living off of your providential, gracious, general love. Kind of like a moocher. And I never understood that they deserve hell. And your mercy has been so great upon them. And that today they've heard the yearning love that you have. That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So Lord, we pray that you'd move, have the freedom spirit to move as you see fit in this room. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.